Tonight's lesson, there we go. Tonight's lesson is one of those that if we had a sermon rating system like movies do, it would probably be labeled for mature Christian audiences only. Not because of any graphic content or anything <laughs> like that, but because it is going to challenge us. It is going to challenge us to really look and to really think and to really explore a little bit beneath the surface of some widely accepted but perhaps not so incredibly accurate conclusions regarding at least one very well-known text. And maybe it wasn't the best idea to preach it on a Sunday night when we were, maybe Sunday morning when we're fresh would have all been better to get us to think, but I really wanted to preach that sermon this morning for the um, sake of those that had just started coming to really think about where they were. So we will move forward with tonight's lesson. Last Sunday morning, I talked about some of those things that we can and must know from the scriptures. Some of those things that we must learn and know. And one of those things is that God's ways are not our ways. God's thoughts are not our thoughts. Isaiah 55, 8 and 9, very familiar passage. We, we know the passage. And we, we know that God's ways and ours are different. We know that God's definitions and ours are different. We know that God's thought process and ours is different. For, for example, if we take the word love today, to many people today, the word love is a, it's, it's something that is nothing more than either an animalistic lust, a, a warm, feeling or some fleeting physical emotion. That's, that's really all love consists of to a lot of people today. But we know that to God, love is a lot more precious and special and powerful. God's definition of love is an all-out commitment to serve the other person's good despite how they may not, may or may not treat us in return, despite sometimes the way we feel to still serve them and be committed to their good. We see this in texts like Matthew chapter 5, verses 44 through 48, John 3, 16, and 1 John 3, 16 through 18. I believe that's why God commands us to love and forgive one another even as he loved and forgave us. He gave us his standard to go by. He gave us his definition of what true love truly is according to him. Just so there'd be no mistake. Just so we can't say, well, I love so-and-so or I forgive so-and-so, when our definition of love and forgiveness may not be exactly what God's is, and usually isn't. But with his definition, love and forgive one another even as I have loved and forgiven you, and I'm combining several texts here, John 13, 34, 15, 12, and Ephesians 4, 32, he told us that so there would be no confusion. The fact that God's thoughts and ways are so far removed from ours, his standards so different, is, is one of the reasons why scripture demands that if we're going to live for God, we must repent. His standards are so different. We must 
repent, that is change direction and start living by his standard instead of continuing to live by ours. We must be baptized for the forgiveness of the things that we have done contrary to his ways and thoughts and commands when we were living for ourselves. And then we must rise to walk in newness of life. Again, all of these verses reflective of the fact that, that God has different definitions and standards and, and sometimes we can, we can almost read our own into them and, and we need to shy away from that. We need to go by God's definitions and not our own. But after we repent and, and we're baptized and we rise to walk in newness of life, I think that even then we can tend on occasion to take a, a verse that is fairly well known or a series of verses as we try to learn and, and grow in and obey the word. We can still find ourselves occasionally reading something into a scripture that's not there from our own personal perspective. We can sometimes find ourselves reading maybe a word or two into a, a scripture that isn't there rather than seeing and understanding it just straight on from the way God said it. Simple, plain, God-given biblical truth. For example, when we read that beautiful passage on love and like-mindedness and being concerned with the interests of others in Philippians 2, 1 through 5, what do we really see there? Turn there with me tonight. That is sort of the central text of tonight's lesson. What do we see there? Philippians 2, verses 1 through 5, very familiar text. Beautiful text. Philippians chapter 2, Paul writing to the Church of Christ in Philippi, Philippians 2, verse 1, he says, Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Let this mind be in you which was in Christ Jesus, whom he will go on to talk about in the next few verses, who had this mindset and, and how that all worked out and some of the dynamics of this mindset. Now, I think typically when we read that, or at least me sometimes, when, when I read that, prone to think that, that what that means is, is that I need to put others' wants and wishes and desires and demands and perspectives ahead of my own, or even fulfill their demands at the expense of my own. I think that's a typical conclusion when we read that verse. But I don't believe based on the very mindset and responses of Jesus Christ himself to people which is what this is talking about, that that's a sustainable scriptural conclusion. So tonight I'd ask that we take an in-depth look at this text and, and see what we think. Let's, let's just take a look at it. Let's go back and break it down one piece at a time. Philippians 2, verses 1 and 2. And again, it's challenging. It's challenging to maybe look at a verse a little different than, than we have, or at least to think about it maybe from a different angle or perspective. Philippians 2, 1 and 2. Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, 
if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, of any affection and mercy, then fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, and of one mind. Our Christian consolation, our loving comfort, our spiritual fellowship, our merciful affection, and our joyful fulfillment all come from the one same single source, being completely united in the one same love and mind and accord of the Lord Jesus. That's what he says right there in verses 1 and 2. All of those things come from having this single-minded love and accord of Christ. And this is not the first time he's mentioned that in this, in this epistle. Look at Philippians 1.27, look what he says. Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Not only is Philippians 2, 1 and 2 not the first time that he has mentioned how our comfort and consolation and spiritual fellowship and joyful fulfillment all come from having this same one like-mindedness. He mentions it or, or brushes up against it again later on in chapter 2 in verses 14 through 16. Same idea. He says, Do all things without complaining and disputing, that you may become blameless and harmless, children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run or labored, I have not run in vain or labored in vain. And then in Philippians chapter 2, in verse 3, he goes on to tell us how to accomplish that. He goes on to tell us how to be completely united in the same one love, mind, and mission. Verse 3. He says, let nothing be, he begins to tell us how to do that. He says, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. First phrase there is, let nothing be done through selfish ambition. The word selfish ambition means an underhanded self-promotion for personal gain. That's what it means. It's the same idea as we see in Matthew chapter 20, verses 20 through 28, when James and John have their mother go to Jesus and ask for places of prominence in the kingdom, kind of climbing the ladder over the other apostles. It is this selfish ambition, is this, this self-promotion for personal gain. It's the same word that Paul already used in this same epistle in Philippians 1.16, when he said, starting in verse 15, some indeed preach Christ even from envy and strife, some also from goodwill. The former preach Christ from selfish ambition, not sincerely supposing to add affliction to my chains, but the latter out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. This word selfish ambition is something that James thoroughly condemns in James chapter 3, verses 14 and 16, where he writes, If you have envy and self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. 
where envy and self-seeking exist. There's all kinds of evil things there. So it's that same Greek term. So the beginning of having this, this light-mindedness and this one accord and this joy and everything that God wants us to have is not to have self-promotion at the expense of others. That never has any place in the church of our Lord. 3 John verses 9 through 11 tell us that. Instead, in lowliness of mind, in humility, we must consider others better than ourselves, looking out for their interests as well as our own, <laughs> verse 4. And the way we do that is just like Jesus did it, verse 5. But the way in which Jesus did it is where the confusion comes in. The way in which Jesus did that is often where our preconceived human notions can kind of come in and, and take over the text. Where we can maybe find something there that isn't really there, and we have to be careful with that. Let's read the text in verses 4 and 5, and then take a closer look at what it does and doesn't say. Verses 4 and 5, here's where the confusion comes in. He says, let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Christ's mindset, which we are to emulate, was to look out for what? His own interests as well as others. Isn't that what the text says? That's what it says. He looked out for his own interests as well as others. But the problem or the misunderstanding that sometimes comes in here is we often think that means putting other people's personal wants or wills or desires or demands either before our own or at the total denial of our own and I don't think that's there in the text. It's not what the text says. We look at it as if, well, that means I've got to put others' demands and desires way ahead of my own or even totally give mine up. But, but that's not, it says looking out for your own interests as well as others. And, and Jesus did that. He did it perfectly. He did it in humility. He did it with love. He did it and accomplished this one-mindedness with other people. But it did not mean at the total expense or overthrow of what he was trying to accomplish, his will. Didn't mean that. We're going to see that. Jesus even in dying on the cross, which is the context of these comments, the whole, the whole first 11 verses here, his death on the cross, Jesus did not put his own desires totally out of the picture and put another's on top of his. In fact, he did quite the opposite, and, and we're going to consider that as we, as we talk about this. In Philippians 2, 4 through 8, the next few verses, as well as a couple we've read, Although Christ's humble mindset was to put others first, it is vital to understand he did not do so at the expense of his own ultimate interest or desire, which was what? To do God's will. Remember that. His ultimate desire, his will was to do the will of God. He told us that in John 5 and verse 30. He told us that in John chapter 6 and verse 38. We're going to prove this repeatedly in just a couple of minutes here. Jesus humble mindset did put others first, but it did not do so either ahead of or at the expense of his own righteous and ultimate interest, which was to do God's will. Before we take a look at some examples, the second thing for us to notice from this passage 
is the idea that putting others first, if I may paraphrase chapter 2, verse 3, the latter part, 3b, if you will, Putting others first in that passage is not necessarily about granting their wants and their desires and their demands at the expense of our own. It doesn't say that. But it is about looking out for their what? What's the word used? It's about looking out for their interests. It's about putting their interests. Doesn't say their demands. Doesn't say their, their uh, opinions, doesn't say their perspectives, doesn't say their understandings. It says putting their interests as well as our own front and center. Or as we might say, doing what is best in their interest. Is that fair enough? Doing what is in their best interest. That's what we're to do, right? Doing what is in their best interest. But you know, sometimes doing what is in somebody's best interest is the last thing they think you're doing. That's, that's the key. Sometimes you have to do what is in somebody's best interest despite their lack of understanding or their adamant desires to the contrary. Thanksgiving's coming right up, right? Sometimes travel to grandma's house, right? Grandma's house may be two hours away. Travel to grandma's house. Have a child. Child says, I want to stop for candy. About every three miles, child says, I want to stop for candy. How many of you moms and dads say every three miles on a two-hour trip to grandma's house, we're going to stop for candy? Not going to happen, is it? You love your child, right? But what they're asking for is not necessarily in their best interest, right? That's the way this works. We, we used to have this place when I pulled out of, uh, I had an assigned run in, in Massachusetts. We had this place where we pulled out of an industrial park. I've told you this before. And it's this little two-lane corner, very narrow, but it's two lanes coming out to a yield sign on a three-lane highway. I think speed limit was 55. So you're coming out of there with an empty tanker truck. You, you going to have to get out into traffic. But what people would do, if you pulled up and you stayed way over to the left with the whole rig, what they would do is they'd pull right up beside you, they'd tuck themselves in on the right-hand side, and here's the duel that you go to take off and that trailer tanker is going to drive it over the top of them unless they move with you because of the off-track on, on a trailer. A trailer cuts tighter in the tractor. So what we used to do was when we pulled into that two-lane, I'd pull up and block that inside lane off with the tail end. I'd pull it up alongside, cut it off, and put the tractor in the left one. The trailer was cutting the right one off. You should have heard the horns I got beeped at me. They thought I was the worst guy on the planet because I won't let them sneak in beside and jettison out of there. Massachusetts drivers. Anyway, you know why I was doing it? I didn't want to have to stop and make out an accident report. And some of those people, in spite of themselves, needed to stay out of that lane so that they didn't get crushed. They didn't understand it but it was definitely in their best interest. And this is what the Lord did constantly and consistently both before and during the crucifixion. This is what we need to understand. Jesus fulfilled Philippians 2 and verse 4 where it says, "Look, let each of you look out not only for his own interest but for the interests of others. Jesus looked out for his own interest which was doing the will of God no matter the cost while also looking out for the interests of others, doing whatever he had to whatever he had to in order to give them what they most needed. And Jesus almost always had to do that in direct opposition to what they clamored for. Almost always. Had to do that in direct contradiction to what they demanded that he do. Because as the title of this lesson says, putting others first oftentimes looks like the last thing on the planet you are doing to them. 
Let me give you some examples of this. Philipp uh, Philippians, Matthew chapter 16, please turn there. Matthew 16, verses 21 and 2. Matthew 16, verses 21 and 2. From that time, Jesus began to show to his disciples he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed, be raised the third day. Then Peter took him aside. Now, I don't know how Peter did that. I don't know if he went, psst, come here. But knowing Peter, I can see Peter grabbing him by the shoulder and saying, that's just who Peter was. I don't know how Peter did it, but Peter took him aside. It's not so important how he took him aside, but look what he said. Peter said this. He said, he began to rebuke him, saying, far be it from you, Lord. This shall not happen to you. That's not going to happen, Lord. Was Peter pretty clear on what he wanted? Oh, Peter was clear, all right. We know what Peter's opinion of that uh, statement Jesus had made back there in verse 21. We know Peter's opinion. We know what Peter wanted. We know what Peter desired. We even know what Peter demanded. That's not going to happen. All based on Peter's perception of the situation. We also know that despite all those things regarding Peter, and despite everything it would personally cost Jesus to carry it out, that Jesus Christ had only Peter's best interest at heart. Is that true? Did Jesus have Peter's best interest at heart? Yes, he did. And having Peter's best interest at heart meant not giving Peter what he wanted most, but what he needed most, in spite of Peter's protestations. Even if Peter didn't understand it at the time, even if Peter would rebuke his best friend for it, Jesus gave him what he most needed instead of what he most wanted and demanded. A crucified savior for his sins, a lesson in the bigger picture, and something Peter desperately needed to learn despite his demands to the contrary. Verse 23, Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan, you're an offense to me for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. When Jesus said that to Peter, did he have Peter's best interest at heart? Did he put Peter first as well as taking care of his own interest, which was to fulfill the word of God? Yes. Having Peter's best interest at heart meant telling Peter, no, you're not going to get that because it's not in your best interest. In John chapter 11, we see this unfold again. Turn with me to John 11. Very familiar story. We won't spend a, a lot of verses read a lot of verses, spend a lot of time, but we see the same thing. John chapter 11, beginning at verse 1, it says, Now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary, and her sister, sister Martha. John 11, 1. Now verse 2. It was that Mary who anointed the Lord with fragrant oil and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. Therefore the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. Notice the word love. 
Lazarus, whom you love. There's no doubt Jesus loved Lazarus. He had only the best interest of Lazarus, Mary, and Martha at heart. That's all he had at heart. We go down, we read again in verse 5. We see that word love again. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus twice. In verses 3, 4, and 5, three short verses, we see that he loved them. The, the, the Holy Spirit wants you very clear that Jesus loved these people. He loved them. So, when he heard he was sick, he stayed two more days in the place where he was. <laughs> I love you so much, I'm going to let you die. Is that, in effect, what happened? It's what happened, isn't it? The sisters were not impressed. You see, that was the opinion of the sisters. We, we read here in verse 17 that when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles away, and many of the Jews had joined the women around Martha and Mary to comfort them concerning their brother. Now Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, went and met him. But Mary was sitting in the house. Now Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. She wasn't the only one of that opinion. Mary said the same thing. Verse 32. If you look down there, when, when she came, she said the same thing. Some of those in the crowd of mourners said the same thing in verse 37. Couldn't this man who opened the eyes of the blind also have kept this man from dying? I, I have a question. Did Jesus love that family? Yeah, he sure did. We didn't even need verses 3 and 5 to tell us that because Jesus loves us all. He loved that family. Did he have their best interest at heart? Absolutely. Did Jesus do what was best for them? No question. Despite everything they may have thought and wanted at the time? Yes. Yes. Did Jesus love them and have their best interest at heart and do what was best for them despite whatever reservations they may have had about him in the meantime? Did he? Yes, yes, and yes. You see, Jesus loved them so much and he was so consumed and so concerned with doing what was in their absolute best interest that he was determined to give them what he knew they needed instead of what they thought they wanted. That's what he did. We see this dynamic unfold one more time before our very eyes in John 13. Look at verse 1. John 13 and verse 1. Before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. What do we see that is very similar to the story we just read about Lazarus? We see it set up twice in the very beginning of this account. We see the word love. The, the, the Holy Spirit, God, wants you to know, wants you to know beyond any shadow of a doubt, Jesus loved these disciples, no matter what follows after this, just like in the story of Lazarus, Jesus loved them. He only had their best interest at heart. He was only watching out for them. God puts that in there so that, or one reason, that there's no mistake going forward from this point that he loved them. And so we read down through and it says, verse 2, And supper being ended, the devil already having put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. 
Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going to God, he rose from supper and laid aside his garments, took a towel and girded himself. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. <laughs> then he came to Simon Peter. <laughs> when you see Simon Peter's name in a, in a place like this, you almost just want to underline. Then he came to Simon. Then everything changes, right? Yep. Peter said to him, Lord, are you washing my feet? Jesus answered and said to him, what I am doing you do not understand now, but you will know after this. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. That is not going to happen, if I may paraphrase. Never. Peter was adamant. That's never going to happen. Peter was determined. Peter was aggressive. No. But Jesus had Peter's best interest at heart. He put Peter's best interest ahead of Peter's demand that he never wash his feet, saying, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Putting Peter first, can you imagine this? You're in this crowd of disciples. Jesus has washed a few feet. You come to Simon Peter and, you know, no, and let's say I'm Peter, and I, and I know it's not going to happen. And Jesus said, look, unless I wash you, I have no part with me. Now, at that point, if I'm Peter, and I'm kind of embarrassed in front of all these guys because Jesus said, if I stick with my guns here, I can't be part, and I've got I've to go the opposite direction. It, to me at the time, if I'm Peter, that doesn't seem like my, my friend Jesus is acting in my best interest. Seems like he's kind of putting me on the spot a little bit, you know? Was Jesus acting in Peter's best interest? Absolutely. Peter needed to learn something. And Jesus was also acting in his own interest because he was doing God's will. And so, Jesus used this lesson to teach Peter a truth that he was going to need to know going forward. In other words, watch this carefully. Jesus brought Peter around to his way of thinking, didn't he? You know what that means? He did bring him around because Peter then goes on to say, yeah, wash me all. How did Jesus bring Peter around to that same single-mindedness, that same single-mindedness, that one accord? How did he bring him around? Easy. He brought him around to that same single-mindedness of love and purpose, Philippians 2, 1 and 2, by looking out for both his own as well as Peter's best interest at the same time, Philippians 2, verses 3 and 4. He did that by staying obedient to the word of God. Jesus did that by staying obedient to the word of God. As we read in Philippians 2, 5 and following, no matter what Peter or any of the rest of the apostles might have wanted or desired or demanded. Do you know how many times we see the same principle again and again throughout the, the crucifixion? How many times through the crucifixion experience narrative do we see Jesus similarly and always putting the interest of others first, not by giving them what they demanded, but by remaining obedient to God and giving them what they needed instead? How many times do we see that? Quite a few, actually. Remember when Peter was ready to fight to the death? We've talked about this in the adult class. Drew one of two swords against hundreds of Roman soldiers, right? Good old Peter. When he was ready to fight to the death, Jesus putting his best interest in mind did not give in to Peter's violent desire and understanding, 
But he said, put the sword back in the sheath, Peter. Now, if I'm Peter, once again, and I'm thinking I'm, I'm brave and I'm going to you know, earn brownie points with the Lord, I'm ready to fight, I'm ready to die, I'm ready to face anything, and I'm ready. And my Lord and Savior, in front of all these other disciples, in front of the guys that have come to arrest me, says, Peter, put the sword back. You're not the hero you think you are. Put the sword back, Peter. It's not the way we're going to do this. If it's me, I, I'm, I'm a little hurt, to be quite frank. I, I'm a little embarrassed, right? Question. When Jesus told Peter that, did he have Peter's best interest at heart? Did he love Peter? Did he preserve Peter's life? We see this so many times. Even though it may have looked like the last thing on earth Jesus was doing to Peter, Jesus was putting him first. Consider with me a couple of others. While the chief priests and the elders and the Roman governor demanded answers at Jesus' trial, Jesus could have outsmarted them, couldn't he? <laughs> He'd done it so many times before. He could have outargued them, he could have outsmarted them, he could have outmaneuvered them. Just that he has so easily done so many times before. And they demanded, and, and, and they're demanding, and Pilate's demanding answers, and, and they, 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 they're making all these demands. What did Jesus do? Despite their demands, he gave them what they needed instead of what they asked for. He remained silent, according to Matthew 27, 12 through 14. Because even though they might not have understood it at the time, it was in both his and their best interest that he fulfilled the scriptures and died for them. Mm. And so he stayed the course at great personal cost. And then finally, when the religious leaders and all the people demanded, remember when they demanded Jesus come down off, come on off the cross if you're the Christ, then we'll believe in you. Remember when they hollered that out? They said they would believe in them. What did he do? They're demanding it. They're aggressive. They're screaming at him. At that instant, Jesus did not give them what they so aggressively demanded, but instead, with both his and their best interest at heart, he stayed. He stayed on the cross, didn't he? Where would they be? Where would you and I be if he hadn't? He stayed. They demanded he come down. Despite all that it would cost him, despite demands to the contrary, despite his own pain and suffering, the scripture says in Philippians 2.8, he became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. The bottom line that I want for us to understand tonight regarding Philippians 2.1-8 is this. Bringing others around to the point of us all having a common love and a common mind and a common understanding begins when we humbly put them first Humbly put them first. By doing what is in both our and their best interest. Which is always, always, always by learning, knowing, obeying, and sharing the will of God. That's it. That's it right there. No matter what anybody might think or want or demand to the contrary, and even when our putting others first may sometimes look like the last thing on earth we're doing to them. That is the mind that was in Jesus Christ. It is the mind which therefore must also be in all of us if we are ever going to experience, as Paul said, the full Christian consolation, 
and loving comfort and spiritual fellowship and merciful affection and joyful fulfillment that only comes from being united and in the same mind. That same one-mindedness must be a one-mindedness that is built on the text, the scripture, nothing else, period. And so we must stay true to the word and that is in our best interest as well as everybody else's. And it will help them like it did Peter if we stand on that word to come around, if they're ever going to, to one single-mindedness. You see, I, I, you, any of us, we cannot love God, we cannot love our fellow man, or we cannot put them above ourselves any more than Jesus did. Was Jesus the epitome in putting God first? Was he? Was Jesus the epitome in putting others first? Yes. Did Jesus always have the interest of others as well as his Father in heaven in mind? Yes. His own interest as well as theirs, but that meant staying true to the word no matter what they demanded to the contrary. Always. Even when those whose best interest he had at heart demanded he do something entirely different or exactly the opposite. And so I want to encourage you tonight, and again, I don't know what's going on in everybody's life, and I don't pretend to, but if today you are standing on God's word, you are doing what God wants. You can see it in black and white, you've studied it, you know you're doing the will of God, just like Jesus did. If you're doing that, and somebody demands that you do exactly the opposite of what you know God wants you to do. <clears throat> Putting them first does not mean doing what they ask you to do and what they ask you to do is completely opposite of what God said to do because you only put your own as well as their best interests first when you stay with what the Word of God says. Because if you can bring them around to what the Word of God says, then you can both stand on that same platform. But if you let somebody else tell you that what you're doing, and it's got to be the will of God, and it humbly needs to be the will of God, but if you know that, and if you studied it, and if you know you are, and they pull you off of that because they demand something to the contrary, you're out in dangerous water. You're going to be lost. But in order to bring them to you, put their best interest in your own first, stand on the will of God, that is what Jesus did, even to the point of dying on a cross, and that's Philippians 2, 1 through 8. So if you're standing on God's word tonight, no matter the opposition and where it may come from in your life, then for the sake of God, for the sake of yourself, and for the sake and interest of those you love, stay the course. Do it God's way. Because that's truly putting God and others first as well as yourself. The lesson is yours tonight. If you're somebody here who's never obeyed the gospel by being baptized into Christ, that option and opportunity is open to you tonight. If you're somebody who has listened to this lesson tonight and you have said to yourself, well, I tried that and I kind of got pulled off course because I thought that putting others first meant doing whatever they wanted and I kind of got pulled away from standing on the Bible. If you need strength in that area, if you need strength to stand stronger on the Word of God, we'll pray for you. If there's anything we can do to help you, please come right now as we stand and sing.